So Graham, I've been hearing all this talk about lumen boxes and paper negatives, and I'm curious if you have any insight into scanning paper negatives using a regular scanner. Is there anything uh, yes. a little different or interesting about that? Yes, absolutely. Um, part of the deal is, you know, you're working with some paper that's been exposed, uh, but not developed and not fixed. Um, so uh, although... Um, Ethan Camerdactyl, uh, was telling us that, uh, some, there's a guy he knows who does the same thing and fixes them. Uh, and then I think he scans them afterwards and I, I I'm going to try that. Um, and the reason why I'm going to try that is, uh, because a scanner emits light, um, and mm, because this quite is a, a lot reflective of surface, yeah. right? Right. So um, it uh, when it emits the light, it it ruins the image to a to a large degree. Um, and does does it just go black or? Well, it it, it, it kind of goes uh, to a blue. Um, mm. You know, it kind of blocks up the image, and there's still some image there. And the image will last if it is not exposed to a bunch of light, like right now. I'm opening up a box that I have, um, you know, and here's a, here's a picture I took a week ago and it, there's, you know, I could scan it today. Um, and, and it would show perfectly. Um, but, uh, and that one I took a photograph of, uh, because I was at work, uh, and I'm at work again. Um, and, uh, so I don't have a scanner here to, to work with. And because I don't have, you know, the scanner, I had to use my phone. The phone does not do as good a job as a scanner does for getting the detail. And um, like I use the Film Lab app and it introduces quite a lot of grain. And right. that's nice. That's nice. I love the aesthetic that I get from it, but it's not really, you know, a faithful reproduction of the, uh, of the results that you get out of the, the camera. So, um, if you scan it, you do, you know, do only one preview and, sure. um, then scan it, um, you know, set up your, your levels and adjustments and whatever you're going to do and scan it and then immediately scan it again. And you will right. see a difference between those two. And then, uh, you'll have to take it into Photoshop and, and really, you know, invert it, modify the colors, um, uh, do all that type of thing. I just, it just occurred to me that, uh, because it's reflective as opposed to transparent, um, you know, it's not a, it's not a negative. Um, I scan it as a positive. I wonder if I can scan it as a negative so I would get a positive result. Um, yeah. Sure, and and I not? just haven't just haven't thought about doing that yet. Um, so uh, you know, it, basically, it comes down to this idea that it it has a limited time, and every time you introduce light, you're changing it. Um, uh, unless you you go through the fixing process before you do that. And well, I it sounds like I'd I, be I'm inclined try to try that uh, coming yeah. up. So you mean you try the one step. I'd, I'd be really, uh, I'd be, yeah. I'd be really inclined to just. I have a copy stand set up for, for shooting f film negatives, right? And it seems like taking a multiple frames, 
you know, with a, with a close-up lens and then uh, scan and stitching them together would kind of give you the best of both worlds. So you could use small amount of light and get a high resolution. Yeah, I think there's something to that. I haven't used uh, any of my digital cameras to digitize these. I've only used my phone. Have you come and, up with uh, a, a macro lens on, for the X-C2 yet? I, yeah, I have. Well, I have some macro tubes. Um, and, uh, I, I, I really have not set up and, uh, I've, I've not done what I need to do. There are a couple of things, uh, I need to do. I have a light tablet, um, which is just, you know, a flat LED box, right? Um, that has a milky, um, diffuser on top, right? And there, there, the big problem that I've had so far is that there's so much light coming up off this table that the camera lens is reflected in the negative yeah, so, uh, surface. So, so my, sim- my simple, sol- yeah. yeah. So my simple solution for that, the kind of crude version that seems to work pretty well, is just to take a, some black paperboard and yeah. cut out a, a hole so it makes a mask. And I just use one that. It's like a six by nine hole and just put it over and it, it blocks enough of the light uh, that shines up towards right. the camera that that seems to work. Yeah. Well. And, and I, I, I plan on doing that. I just haven't yet. Um, uh, and you know, uh, I, it, it's that, that's something that's on my, on my list, uh, to do. So, uh, you know, it, it, yeah, I, I think maybe digitizing with a camera really is the way to go with these things, especially if you don't fix them. But if you um, if you do fix them, yeah, I, you know, you, you can scan them all day. Uh, it's just, you know, I haven't, mm-hmm. I haven't gone through that yet. Yeah, that that's probably the smartest idea yeah. of all. Yeah. So are are you interested in this this? Um, this luminography, are you interested in doing, um, uh, you know, getting one of these cameras or building one of these cameras and, and shooting it? Oh yeah, definitely. And yeah, and, and more paper negatives in general, uh, you know, whether or not they're luminography, either way, it'd be something I'd like to do more of. Yeah. I wonder if that fast paper that I have a few, you know, have one box of, I wonder if that would work. For with luminography, I know you said that the hype. I know you said that the Ilford uh, direct positive didn't work, but this is a different, different chemistry, so it might. Right. Um, it is um, considerably. If it's faster, I wonder what the exposure times are because um, you know, uh, really seriously, uh, sunny sixteen. Well, it's not even sunny sixteen. Sunny eight. Um, F8. I've been shooting a lot of F8. Sunny F8. Uh, it could be 15 minutes. Um, so uh, I'm wondering, you know, and that's ISO one. Yeah, and uh, this is rated at um, between 100 and 200, so that should okay, be a so lot faster. Yeah, one, In- two, four, eight, sixteen, uh, thirty-two. 64, 128, that's uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 stops. Um, but so, that's a, assuming that the ISO is has this, is this 
is an equivalent relationship to the, you know, in luminography, right. which it may not be. Like it, it might be that this stuff tarnishes at exactly the same rate as the right, ISO right. one so, stuff. So who knows? You right. Know. So, so let's take it. It stops down from eight minutes. So that's four minutes, two minutes, one minute, 30 seconds, uh, 15 seconds, seven and a half seconds, three and a half seconds. Or three and three quarters seconds. Um, so, uh, you know, that's, I think, um, uh, you know, that, that's reasonable, you know. Yeah, although um, it, it might turn out that there's no difference because right. uh, it, it may be that without the chemistry part of the development. Oh, yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's completely irrelevant. Who knows? Oh, you know? Yeah, you have a point there. I hadn't even thought about that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it may be that with the, uh, direct positive paper, everything turned pink, a uniform pink when I used it, <laughs> but that doesn't mean that it wasn't, um, uh, that maybe the right length I, exposure, I, I, I you might have still got an image. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so, uh, I don't remember what's the, what's the ISO rating for, uh, Ilford direct positive. Do you know? That's really slow. I think it's down around six. Okay. Here, let's see. Um, ISO. And it should come up. And. Okay. Uh, one to three, it says. Uh, from, uh, from Ilford Photo from, from Harmon's right. website. Right. Yeah. Uh, so. So that, yeah. that's just paper. Yeah. That's yeah. all that really is. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll uh, we'll have to uh, give some more um, experiments and some more trial on that. So let's uh, start the home and camera podcast. One of the things that we've talked a little bit about in the past, but we haven't really gone into much detail on, is the concept of what the camera looks like, the aesthetics of the camera. So uh, so we wanted to talk about this this time, and we wanted to, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm looking at my Lumen Box, and I've been talking a lot about it, and uh, that's because I've been doing a lot with it. But um, the thing about the Lumen Box is that it is completely form following function, form versus function. Um, it has little rounded corners because square corners don't print well on a uh, 3D printer. It has, um, you know, it's a box the size that the box needs to be. And it's, you know, and there's really very little consideration for aesthetic, although I do like the way it looks. Um, so in, in what, how do we, how do we go about starting to address that? What do you, what do you think, um, we should do to address that? Well, it seems like there's a, there are so many different ways that the appearance of a, of a camera is going to, either impact its function or change its function. So we have a tendency to think of, well, the idea of form following function is pretty straightforward and it makes sense. So you, you make 
something the, the most functional possible way. And then that drives what it looks like. And then of course, from there, you can, you can decorate or modify the details. But I think there's also a way in which you should think of the appearance as part of the function and uh, especially with a camera. So if you point a really funny looking camera at a person, they may present themselves differently than if you point a very business-like looking device at them. And so there's going to be a direct relationship. And also, I think in some sense, the, the function the, the, in that it drives how you use the camera will also uh, have some impact on the uh, results. So a camera that's fast and easy to use, and it may be one that's small and inconspicuous, will perhaps free you up uh, from maybe having too much sort of baggage as a photographer that you're presenting to your subject. I, you know, a good example of that would be if you think of, um, you know, uh, the the camera dactyl four by five in say um, Barbie pink. Um, with, um, maybe, uh, I don't know, lemon yellow bellows with mm-hmm. cupcakes on the bellows, mm-hmm. you're going to get a different reaction, um, than you are if you would take the same camera that was in all black. And a lot of people, uh, apparently ordered, you know, the, the all black version of that. So the question is, um, you know, kind of, I guess it, I guess it comes down to, uh, personal aesthetics and personal, uh, points of view. If you, if you're a child photographer, <laughs> you know, um, maybe that Barbie camera is going to be, uh, a lot better. And if you, you know, but I wanted to say that, you know, maybe the black camera would be all better if, you know, you're this serious landscape photographer, but what's, What's the problem with taking the Barbie camera out into the landscape? Um, but you well, would there get... is there is only one problem, and I have heard this said of any sort of unusual camera is that you can get too much, uh, you can have your be distracted too much by all the people who come up and want to know what the heck that thing is. Right. Um, so there, there's that sort of I don't know attractive nuisance factor that <laughs> that you could get into. I remember on the FP. FPP, I think it was Joseph Bringes was talking. It may have been one of the other people who was on there. Um, he was talking about the idea of shooting um, large format in New York City. And uh, there was uh, a point at which he had his camera set up, or he went somewhere where he was going to set up his camera. And, you know, 20 feet away was a guy with another eight by 10 or four by five, whatever it was, um, doing the, the same, same thing. And they never talk to each other. You know, to me, I, I, how do you not talk to each other at that point? But, um, it, Oh yeah, but I, you, that's, I a, can that's a lot of eight by 10 film that might be wasted because you're distracted. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cause you have to concentrate. You have, you, you right. know, absolutely. I mean, um, if you're using, if you're using a $10 sheet of film, Right. To make an exposure and someone wants to talk to you, you might just be better off just shooting them, you know? Right. You know, and, and part of the deal, yeah, shooting them, you mean with a gun? Uh, <laughs> um, it, uh, part of the deal is it, it's also that it's New York, you know? Um, and, it, you know, it depends on 
the type of area that you're in and, um, you know, what you're yeah. shooting and, right. you know, whether you're on public property or private property or the side of the road, a deserted road, the side of a busy highway, you know, it's those types of things are going to change. Um, and certainly, um, your camera is going to stand out more. And there are times when you don't really necessarily want a large attention span. But if you were also, you know, from the aesthetic point of view, going to take the Barbie camera into, and I'm using the, the Barbie camera just as a stand in, you know, for any colorful, non standard, um, non traditional, shall we say, non traditional. Sure. Uh, companies camera. like com- some of the some of the Japanese camera companies have made some pretty f- outrageous looking cameras even in recent times. Um, I mean, Fuji's doing it right now, but in the past, Pentax put out some really up- bizarre lines of of. Com- com- what, what, uh, give me an example. So some of the consumer cameras that they've made, including DSLRs and mirrorless cameras, over the last I don't know ten or fifteen years, are there. They've made cameras in really goofy. Uh, colors, you know, pink and white and, and with a sort of strange blocky shapes. And they're, they're very strong, unprofessional looking, uh, uh, kind of fashion statements. And a lot of people hate them because there is a lot of conservatism in the camera world. You know, people, people take the, the whole gear thing way too seriously. And, it seems, it seems for a lot of people, as soon as you depart from the kind of basic black camera, uh, people get upset. Yeah. They, yeah. They, yeah. Don't, they don't, they don't feel it looks important enough. I don't know. Something like that. Well, you know, and, and part of the deal, um, I, well, I, I want to finish, finish my thought and I'm going to come back to this. Um, the, the, the thought was if you go in to shoot a CEO with the Barbie camera, you know, it depends on the CEO, right? Um, mm-hmm. but those tend to be very conservative, uh, traditional people. And, um, and, and that is, you know, uh, a, a, a difficult situation. Uh, uh, they may feel that they may feel that their time is valuable, for instance, right. and that they don't want to, they don't want to spend a lot of time sitting in front of a camera that's below their status, you know? Right, right, exactly. <laughs> right. Okay, so the Pentax that you, that you were talking about, um, uh, they have a whole line of consumer, um, DSLRs or they have had that come in red and blue. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they have like these weather cameras that are orange, um, mm-hmm. you know, and I love orange. So why not? Why would I not get that? Um, but the, so I, I see the, I see what you're saying. Um, and you know, you go back, there were some, was it, uh, Oh, Mamaya 645s that were available, like in white. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, uh, and I think that there were some other colors available. And uh, then there's the, the traditional, like, anniversary editions that are usually often in these horrible, gaudy, gold plated kind of, you know, right. With, with the skins of rare animals and all that kind of horrible stuff that, that's, right. there's a long tradition of that too yeah. right and and, and, that, and have you have you seen some of the have you seen some of the uh fake soviet era cameras there, oh, there's you, a whole that whole you, industry you mean, of 
You mean the the like Kievs that are are made to look like um, German Luftwaffe cameras, that type of thing? Well, there's a whole series where they glue a bunch of of Soviet Union stuff on. So there's like okay. there's cameras where they'll glue a picture of Stalin, you know, or a medallion of Stalin onto the camera, and maybe some red leather, and you know, they there's a whole industry of dressing up old Soviet Union era cameras to look like some sort of uh, extravagant propaganda tool, which in, didn't exist at the time. They're just made right. up things that people make with glue and, and old, you know, bric-a-brac and paraphernalia from that era. Um, it's kind of a strange industry. Although in real life, there was a Stalinette camera. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> from, from the real, you know, back in the day, but it didn't have, as far as I know, it didn't have a big, you know, medallion with Stal- Stalin on the camera. It's, so there is this, um, there is a thing about decorating old cameras to sell them on the internet, which, yeah, uh, yeah which yeah. includes a bunch of, of fake history and yeah, that kind of thing. Right. Um, uh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, so I, I, there was something, you know, I, I kind of like these fake Luftwaffe cameras, these fake German, um, because I, 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 I like the, yeah, this is hard hard to go through um the the visual aesthetics to me very much work however yeah and it was something that that you know i was i was you know kind of pulled to those things and i thought you know that could be fun to have because they're you know they're, they're even branded like and they you know they're engraved and all all that type of stuff and then i was listening to classic camera revival and um, you know, one of the people, you know, we just talked about the whole idea of, okay, so this has Nazi, um, uh, you know, uh, symbolism on it. And I, you know, I, I don't want to have anything with Nazi symbolism. And it was just like one of those things where I went, oh, duh, why, why did it take that long for me to just kind of wake up to that end of it? You know, uh, but I, but I really like the, you know, the brassing and the engraving and, you know, the painting and all that type of stuff. So that era is very interesting because it's the, it's like we're fully entering the modern age at at that time. Uh, Right. But the craftsmanship and materials are still in many ways reminiscent of the middle ages. So you have, you know, fine metalwork and leather work that's handwork being done i mean right. cameras were still made in a sense by hand in that era yeah for instance or or you know or bomber jackets or whatever we're talking about were made using materials and techniques that go way way back and into craftsmanship but there's this kind of modern form follows function a little more bare bones modernistic aesthetic and the combination of those two things is i think maybe just for people from our generation i don't know but it's remarkably appealing to me as well yeah uh, so the 30s through the 40s right. is this wonderful period. And then in the 50s, it all starts to, you know, slide into decadence and <laughs> excess. And, <laughs> right. Uh, yes, absolutely. There's nothing wrong with decadence and excess as long as you do it in moderation, right? <laughs> um, so, um, you know, uh, so it, it, the the look of that camera does a couple of things that we just, uh, that I want to get up front. Um, 
And, you know, one of the, one of the things that I constantly refer to is some cameras beg to be picked up and some don't, Mm -hmm. um, you know, some you love to hold some, you love to, to, to be holding, you know what I'm, uh, what I'm saying? Um, you know, if I'm walking around with, um, you know, with my Leica M3, the number of people who have any clue or M2, um, the people who have any clue of what that camera is, you know, are dwindling. Um, although maybe there's a little bit of, uh, of rise at this point, you know, so, you know, I'm kind of proud of that camera. I want to, I want to have that camera, you know, if, uh, if I'm sitting at a restaurant, I like it sitting on the table. You know, I'm, you know, you know where, where I'm going with that. It's part of my social plumage. Um, and, uh, and so that, that is as much a part of the process of what we do, whether you want to admit it or not, there's, there's something about that. Um, Well, it doesn't, it almost doesn't matter whether you admit it because it's, it's someone else's uh, reaction is going to be based on how they feel about it more than how you feel about it. We took a brief and formal poll of the kind sort of categories of aesthetics that get used in, in the coming up with an appearance for a camera. And of course, there are many more than we're going to list here. But just as a way to get started, you can you can look at any sort of uh, stream of images of people's homemade cameras or modified cameras or even just adapted lenses and start to see certain patterns that have to do with whatever's in fashion among different groups of people uh, or maybe certain artistic sensibilities. So you'll see a lot of uh, steampunk style cameras, for instance. Um, there's a lot of retro style coming out nowadays where they're basing camera designs on older designs. There's uh, anything under the you know category of fashion. You can find examples that hark back to various different uh, periods of fashion or style. Um, there's this futuristic idea, which is a, plays a big role in American design over the last hundred years, really, um, things that reflect, uh, the sort of sense of, of how technology is important in our, in our culture in, in this looking towards the future, that idea. Um, and then there's just plain fun, kind of playful things like you mentioned, camera dactyls, um, they look like maybe something from a kid's playroom, you know, really colorful and cheerful. Uh, and then I, I often like to think of a category that just comes under the, the category of craft. So, you know, there's cameras that have a certain, uh, there'll be materials and handling of parts in them that are sort of showing off the skills of the craftsman. Uh, so maybe fancy wood or metalwork or something that is really there just to say somebody spent a lot of time on this, you know, and to making it look good. So, so let's, uh, let's do those, um, in order. And, uh, so there may be some people out there who have heard the term steampunk and are not really familiar with it. Um, the concept is, um, technology, uh, of today 
in the time of the steam engine, um, you know, uh, late 1800s really uh, is, is what we're looking for. The Victorian era, late Victorian era. Um, and it's it's actually really relevant to what we're talking about because what there's what steampunk suggests is that it would be theoretically possible for technology to advance uh in terms of the capability of equipment without the style changing so right you know so that so you get a, a ray gun that looks like it was a part of a of a steam you know of a steam locomotive that yeah. kind of and yeah. and a big part of that is like clockwork um so um last episode um Ethan mentioned what was it three hands uh here um Instagram and three hands uh and I forget exactly what it, I that's not the full name of the person and I'm doing a little Google search in my uh I'm at work and the and the web is slow here so that'll come up um but if you went to look at, uh, I had it in the show notes for, for the last episode. Um, one of the things that this guy created was an actual clockwork camera that had a, a clockwork exposure and uh, all those elements and, uh, you know, a, a clockwork shutter. And uh, he, the clockwork was visible and... Um, Oh, and now it says I don't have internet. Well, that that, that could be. So, uh, yeah, it's going to, uh, we'll have to look it up. I'll put it in the show notes uh, exactly, um, uh, you know, who who this is. Um, but, you know, a lot of what we, a lot of the internal traditional mechanical cameras are essentially those clockwork escapements um, that give uh, different, different um, shutter speeds and the idea of exposing them to the outside uh, it just that that turns my crank um, the um, the the ones that um, you know that we also see are you know fake devices on the outside you know where, where they just kind of yeah, glue on um, uh, you know pieces of gears and, and pieces of, of clockwork. Um, you know, you, you take apart a, an old mechanical clock and, uh, and put the gears on the outside and there's nothing wrong with those. Uh, I think, I think, you know, that's a perfect use for, uh, a, um, a C3, you know, uh, and, uh, an Argus C3. But uh, you could say in a sense, what you're talking about is using the guts of machines as decoration. Right. And, exactly. And yeah. And that's, that it, it's a strange thing. I feel, I don't feel very attracted to doing it. I don't mind seeing it, but it doesn't appeal to me particularly. Uh, I, I can, I don't feel like everything that is visible needs to be, you know, doing some serious work or business, but I don't know, just putting a gear on something to make it look well, okay. impressive well, kind, of, well, kind of bothers me a little bit. <laughs> let's do let's do some uh, analogy. And I don't think I looked up when I was downstairs in your house, but... Um, uh, you can, in fact, see the joists. You yes. see, okay, so you see the joists. Well, you can buy styrofoam... Uh, joist to put across your ceiling 
Mm, yeah, um, you can get fake cobwebs too, in case you want to make people. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, it's one of those things that you see quite a lot of. And I was, um, I was just uh, uh, eating dinner in a restaurant in downtown Ocala, Florida, uh, this last Friday, and um, Ocala kind of uh, bills itself as the brick city, and there are a lot of uh, in the downtown area. There's a square, and in the downtown area, there are a lot of brick buildings, and I, I don't really know whether it goes past just that aesthetic of those brick buildings. But the restaurant we were in, um, you know, had the exposed brick wall. Um, mm. And it had exposed girders. And, you know, uh, it, it really had that, here, we're going to show you the, you know, the the outside of this are uh, we're going to show you what is mechanical. We're going to show you what is structural here in in uh, in this building. You know, and the classic example of that in cameras is the Argus C3, which puts a bunch of cogwheels on the surface of the camera, right? Which they did to make it look more right. like scientific. You know, <laughs> you know, and and also uh, we talked about this in the in the 500 cameras episode. Um, the, um, uh, oh boy, what it's the Kodak, um, 620 mm -hmm. medium format camera. What is it? Come on. Oh, I don't remember the name of it. Oh my. Okay. And it's sitting underneath a camera that I'm, uh, exposing a, a lumen in, so I can't, can't get it. But, oh, the Metalist, that's what it is. Uh, the Kodak Metalist is a camera that exposes the the spiral gearing on the helical and uh that oh i love that in fact that's actually yeah that's appealing because it's something that's meant to be there that's doing actual function right and being able to see it to me um almost i mean it, it, until i started taking lenses apart it never occurred to me to even wonder why how they went in and out so smoothly right. <laughs> But actually being able to see it is appealing. Yeah. And that's, um, you know, th that's one of the ones that, uh, that I, that I like a lot. <clears throat> and I would kind of, um, uh, that's not quite steampunk. That's, uh, that's early gasoline. Uh, well, they hadn't invented know, the age. idea of steampunk. I mean, it's yeah. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, it, it, uh, I, I mean, it's, it's a little bit later on. It's, uh, it has some deco elements to it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and it and it's coming up on uh, that jet age, rocket age kind of design. It's a little bit previous to that. So, but mm -hmm. uh, okay. So um, other that we also have retro designs. Um, you know, specifically um, cameras that are designed to look older than they are. And one of the first ones that I can think of is uh, Robert Ham's. Uh, new box from the ham camera company which was a kickstarter and i'm not sure is he um uh are they selling those directly now oh i don't know i i, I haven't looked into it they sound like great cameras yeah yeah they really do and i feel uh like i would have liked to have uh gotten in on that kickstarter and didn't you know um afterwards there are many more kickstarters that I wish I would have gotten in on than I regret having gotten in on, you know? Um, so, you know, that's, uh, that's one of the, uh, and then the, the, the virtual world is full of those. The, the, uh, 
you know the fake the apps that turn that that modify a phone camera in and modify the results of it. Oh right, yeah, often. yeah. Or, Instagram itself. So when you look at the back of your iPhone, you you know, and you I use the one I like a lot is a is a, a one a product that makes a fake tintype. Um and I think it's oh. a it's a hips it's a hipstomatic app, but it's called Tintype. Oh. Um and and, and I actually like the results of, of using that with a phone. But it's it it presents you with a picture of like a made up weird looking kind of fake camera thing that that is supposed to bring you back to the era of the civil war you know right <laughs> when you look at it but it's just a made-up thing and i sort of enjoy that uh fantasy versions of of older cameras it's 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 not trying to pretend to be some historically accurate thing it's just kind of giving you right. this this feeling and uh those are sort of fun. It's like it's like the the scammers that we've been playing with. Sure. Um, the, my favorite feature of of the one I'm using now is that it's it's built to copy both rangefinder and single lens reflex designs, which you would never ever see combined in a real camera. And whoever designed this box just wasn't thinking about function at all. They just were looking at at purely at form and saying, "Oh, this looks cool. Let's put that cool bump there. Let's put that cool window there." And you know, they ended up just making an, impo- an impossible mix mishmash of different I would buy features. a rangefinder SLR uh because focus is so much easier with a rangefinder it's ridiculous um but I know but I'd then why that. do you even have the mirror oh i guess you could it, you mean well, so you'd have the option of so the you, option of both no so you frame you can preview depth of field you can do all that type of stuff it takes some of the the brain work of shooting a rangefinder out of out of it um, sure. Well, that's what a Fuji X Pro One does. I mean, that's what that is. The 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 it's it's a, a digital camera that combines right. a through through the lens with an EVF and an, a, a sort of rangefinder style optical viewfinder, both in the same camera. Right. And you're right; that is a very appealing feature. But in actual, I mean, I don't know how you would the mechanics of having a through the a proper rangefinder. Well, I guess you could just you do can- it. I guess. Because you can convert some of the old Leicas into an SLR with that contraption that they used to sell. Oh, right. Like the Leica prism or whatever it is. Yeah, they added a prism to uh, an M-type rangefinder camera so that you would be able to see through the lens. But But it offsets the the lens mount to a degree that... Uh, yeah, they probably, it, it, I'm, I'm just thinking that, you know, it would make every lens, a, a uh, macro lens, uh, because of how far away. No, from, they actually yeah. have a, de- no, they actually yeah. create a device that truly gives you the functionality of a single lens reflex. And, mm-hmm. but I think, I don't think it did both at once. I think you had to convert back and forth and it was cumbersome and it certainly didn't take, uh, take off. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh, well, and you could also just do a range finder, um, the you know the way it, just a a rangefinder not a viewfinder right so you would have two windows um that type of thing so well actually uh, i like cameras like that yeah um, yeah yeah um okay so um it, there are a lot i mean fuji really is hitting that retro look um you know with the uh what is it the x100 F- well, they have a whole, yeah, the whole X series. Actually, yeah. all their current digital cameras have, have 
And it's interesting because they, I think, really understand the balance. So they're doing camera designs that combine an appearance that has a retro flavor, but they at the same time manage to make it look current. Right. And a lot of, a lot of the retro stuff that they do is actually more about function and, and then maybe just a hint or a nod at the appearance, uh, retro appearance. And that's, that's actually a very, a very, sophisticated i think approach right to design. adding yeah. uh you know using knobs instead of menus um or dials knobs are great instead of menus right optical viewfinders on digital cameras and all that sort right. of right yeah. yeah absolutely yeah, absolutely so um we also have have you started listening to uh matt loves cameras uh it's a podcast no, um matt i forget his matt uh, i forget his last name uh, he is in sunny Brisbane, Australia, and um, he 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 has the uh, of all the podcasts that I've listed on the filmpodcastnetwork.com, his has the highest production values. He had uh, he had his kids do um, like uh, little little uh, bumper sounds um, or interstitials. Um, uh, where, you know, the kids yell, Matt loves cameras. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, and, and he's got, you know, music, um, uh, you know, we throw in music, but he's got, uh, um, his production values are way higher than ours. But so now we're just, talking about the aesthetics of podcasts. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, uh, I like old Soviet era podcast. You listen to us. Mm, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, he just uh, talked about the Olympus LT1, which is ex- essentially a Mu1 or a uh, stylus, whatever. Uh, maybe the Mu1 never came to the United States. I don't know what the stylus um, sub version the Mu1 was. Um, but it's essentially a Mu1 uh, wrapped in uh, a faux leather. Um, it looks almost like a glasses case, um, you know, or, a, mm. you know, a, a small clutch purse, that type of thing. Mm. And so they took all the interior parts and they said, well, let's make a fashionable outside. So they just, you know, they just redesigned the shell. And they did that several times. There's also something called an O product. Um, and um, I, I, I really liked that. Um, I like that kind of approach. Now, oh, one of the things is it's the, almost the direct opposite of form follows function because the function mm-hmm. is all hidden in the form. Mm-hmm. And, right. uh, and there's something to be said for that as well you know um well there's and there's two there's essentially two tiers of function so if you think of function in terms of the structure and mechanism that makes it function that's one thing but there's also with a camera there's the the haptics there's how you handle it there's how it you know how it interacts with your hand and your eye and your nose and you know all of that and that's actually really important formal stuff that is both about what the thing looks like and about how it functions. Okay. I'm not familiar with that word. Did you say haptics? Yeah. So there's a, um, that's, you'll, you'll run into it in the new iPhone. Uh, but it's a, it's a term that has to do with 
the feedback between the device that you're using and how you interact with it. Okay. Um, and so with a phone, they're just talking about, for instance, now when there's a combination of a sound and a vibration, the vibration will on the newer phones will be, uh, will be matched or harmonized with the sound so that it will, for instance, vibrate in sympathy with it, with a rhythm of the sound or something like that. But what it does is it makes the thing you're using seem more alive and like more like it's communicating with you. Uh, and then there, yeah. And then the similar idea with, um, uh, what do we say? Ergonomics. So the way that, you know, if the button falls in the right place on your hand, it's not just physically more comfortable, but it's faster to use and, you know, that, right, that sort of right. Thing. Exactly. Um, it, 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 the, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, we've, we've all been accustomed to keyboards. Um, I am much more accustomed to a, uh, the keyboard we use to interface with computers than we are, than I am with the keyboard on the phone. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas, you know, the, you know, a couple of generations after me, so say the kids that were born in the late eighties, um, those, those kids, by the way, are adults now. I should recognize that. Um, but uh, the people late eighties on, um, you know, they came of age as the iPhone and the first Androids came available. And so their speed on using their thumbs approaches my speed using all 10 fingers on the standard typewriter keyboard that sure. You know, that and I of course have. that standard typewriter keyboard was designed to slow people down right. so they wouldn't jam the keys on the early mechanical <laughs> typewriters. So, so there's, there's, there's some dinosaur function stuff that's still, yeah. still out there. So, yeah. so, okay. So haptics is, is, um, uh, you know, you, you talked about the, the, um, the sound that plays at the same time as, um, you know, a, a chime that, that, uh, or a, a vibration at the same time as a sound and, all that type of stuff. Uh, in the web world, we just refer to those as micro interactions. You know, if you roll over something and it changes in some way, that's a micro interaction. It doesn't, it doesn't function as anything other than um, confirming that this is something that you can interact with. Um, you know, uh, anything more than that, you know, um, generally, um, you know, that's not a micro interaction, but yeah. Okay. So, so, so I'm going to, I'm going to read the, the definition of haptic just to, to clarify that the use of technology that stimulates the senses of touch and motion, especially to reproduce remote operation or computer simulation, the sensations that would be felt by a user interacting directly with physical objects. So it's, it's the, the movement and uh, touch sensation component of the feedback you're getting from a, a machine. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that's, that's kind of what it really means. Okay. And, uh, and that, and that's certainly a big part of a lot of cameras design. I mean, just the way the shutter button feels and, right. uh, you or, know, the way that, or let's go back to the phone, the sound of the shutter, uh, which mm -hmm. is an AE1 shutter apparently. Um, right. Although, but that would, it's only the part of the, the part where you feel through your fingers that's, it's technically haptics and oh, okay. the part where you auditory part is, uh, you know, a different, oh, okay. different, 
ingredient of the same kind of sensory feedback spectrum. Yeah. So uh, let's move on to to our next set, and this is something that we saw definitely um, a lot in the fifties and sixties, um, and that's the uh, a future look. And a future look is you know essentially you're making it look like it's coming from an age that has not yet arrived. Um, you know, I'm still, uh, I don't know about you, Nick, but I'm still waiting for my, uh, helicopter, my flying car. So I don't have to wait in traffic all day. Um, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Then we yeah well that traffic, you should, but... you, I think you're going to have to make it yourself. And, yeah. um, I think that would be a great Kickstarter. Um, yeah. The right. Flying car. Yeah. The flying car ought to do pretty well. I well, think. um, uh, Ethan talked, uh, mentioned last time the aqua aqua car i don't know why we can't have a flying aqua car uh, the funny one of the funniest things about those cars is that they put the uh some of them put you know they basically they're set up so that you're going to sit off to one side the way you do on the road um and they don't trim very well in the water if you're not sitting in the middle oh <laughs> like, right right absolutely (laughs) and i've seen you know i've seen a little sports car version of an aqua car with a very large person driving it and (laughs) practically taking water in over the door on his side of it oh yeah you'd have to have some sort of like um ballast uh shiftable ballast kind of thing that's yes the passenger in other words right yeah yeah, exactly (laughs) (laughs) hey ballast where do you want to go today uh um uh, and by the way, I want to be able to take a shower in my uh, flying aqua car. Um, Let's just o- just open the door. <laughs> Either while it's raining or while you're in the water. That's a bath. That's more of a bath than a shower. So, uh, so you know, a lot of the cameras that were aimed at the youth in the 50s had that kind of jet age rocket age space age kind of um feel to it and and i'm and i'm putting i'm putting those three eras as evolutions of the same thing so so um uh the rocket age is definitely 50s the the jet age is the 60s and the space age is kind of the 70s but you know but they bleed on each other they they all definitely bleed on each other and that's another one of those crossover periods. Like I was talking about how World War II uh, equipment has that feeling of kind of medieval craftsmanship, but in right. modern design sensibility. And the Rocket Age is similar. And I love that that whole thing with the 60s where you have automobiles that are built as if they're armor using similar technology to right. armorers, but with the theme being kind of space travel and, you know, Big, like everything looks like a bullet or a, or a missile or something. Yeah, like the yeah. and the fins, the big, you know, they had stabilizing sure. fins. Um, exactly right. So, um, you know, uh, and we saw that we we see them very much in like one twenty seven cameras. You know that uh, one twenty seven, I think, was was very much uh, a, a format that was marketed. Uh, at the youth and amateur, not yet enthusiast market, right? Um, uh, the snapshot market. And so a lot of those uh, brownies and, uh, and cameras like that really had that, um, that look and feel. And, uh, but then we, 
Right. You know, now, um, you know, I read a lot of science fiction and um, there's kind of a joke that there is no optimism in science fiction anymore and that everybody's writing dystopian futures. So now what we, you know, a dystopian um, future camera would be, you know, like an AE-1 with a dent in it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, one that yeah. has been dug up. Um, one right. that, you know, it's got a scrape, you know, it's got a shovel mark on it. Um, or maybe a, or maybe a bayonet. Sure. <laughs> That's that I'm thinking of the, uh, of the dystopian future where manufacturing is really, you know, has, has decentralized again and has, um, has gone downhill. And what we do is, is mine, you know, we mine abandoned houses. For, well, that's already basically stuff. my. That's already my uh, pre, pre, main procedure for making cameras. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly. I don't know. It may, it may just be my personal finances are entered, entered a dystopian age. But right uh, there we go. Uh, but you know, I I can definitely see a lot of uh, you know. I, I mean, the, the Frankenbessa, I would say, uh, and those Franken cameras where you, where you're putting different lenses on those old bodies are definitely part of that dystopian aesthetic, you know, where, uh, you know, if, okay. So dystopian, you and, know, the, and that, and I want to say like that the, the Frankenstein, Frankenstein metaphor is, is perfect because it's not just about uh, chopping up parts from different sources and sewing them together, but it's also about bringing something dead back to life. Right. Right. So exactly. That, that, that's that whole theme. Yeah. And, and, uh, fitting together um, discarded uh, parts or parts that separately have no chance of working, but when you bring them together, um, you, you know, you bring multiple, you know, you cannibalize different parts uh, from different right. and, machines. And the other thing about the whole Frankenstein story is the idea that, uh, you know, that science is wonderful, but it can also go astray. And, Right. The, the the idea too that it's sympathizing with the monster instead of being a story about you know people triumphing over nature it's sort of a story about about sort of the tragedy of of our relationship to the to nature you sure. know, which is yeah so our last uh little category here is the bright and playful um or you you added in the craft and so we'll do the craft after this but um, you know the 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 bright camera dactyls, the Lego cameras. Um, uh, you know, there's no reason why you can't paint your camera. Um, you know, you can't buy an SLR and paint it. You know, when they, when they cost twenty bucks, when you know uh, an X7A you can get with a lens in the thirties and forties uh, of of U.S. dollars. Um, that's, there's no reason why you can't paint it. You, you can't paint it in stripes, you know, or you can't paint, you know, a puppy dog face on the side, or you can't, um, you know, uh, clashing colors and, and that type of thing. Um, you know, and, and we can also design cameras that are, that are made to, for that. And that's, you know, really what Ethan did, 
uh, has done throughout his line uh, of products. Um, and yeah, now I'm now that you're saying all this though, in terms of in terms of the the uh, planned impact on the people you're photographing. So if if you if you want a really bright and playful camera because you want to create a certain uh, atmosphere while you're taking pictures, you could do that with your personal outfit just as much as with the camera. So you don't have to have a camera that looks that way. Right. But if you don't, you're forced to wear the clown clothes yourself and that has its own implications. <laughs> so, so there's, there's something to be said for making the tool embody all of that so that you, you yourself don't have to. Or, or on the other hand, um, you can match a clown outfit with a clown camera. Um, well, I did see somebody who had a suit matching the bellows on his camera dactyl camera. Oh, right, right. Somebody, yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone posted a photo, and that was a very nice, a very good look. Right. Uh, but that is something, too, that, I mean, all this spills beyond that beyond the camera and also beyond the appearance into into the, you know, how you use something um, in, in the context. You know, where are you using it? And that's all part of it, too. Right. So talk about the craft. Um, you go, go, well, there's a, go lot, a little deeper into yeah, that. Well, a lot of, there's quite a few cameras that people make, especially homemade ones, uh, that, that are coming from a craft tradition. And a lot of times we're thinking, I'm thinking of things like wood, for instance, where you can see the full range from someone who makes a camera out of a hunk of driftwood, um, to somebody who uses fine cabinet work techniques to make a really beautiful piece of woodwork, um, where the actual handling of the materials goes well beyond what you need from func for functionality. And there's, there's a lot of different ways that this can be done, but the basic idea is that you, you're making something that's either a beautiful or valuable in appearance and, uh, or both. And that's a whole kind of parallel, uh, consideration that cuts through all the other versions that we're talking about. So you could, you could make a retro camera that was a retro cheap camera or a retro camera that looked like a, a fine piece of, uh, you know, a high quality machine work. And a lot of the old German, uh, cameras from the period when they were the supreme camera builders have a lot of craft in their design. And, uh, it, it can, it really, it, it it has a strong effect on the appearance. It also often means that they last longer, that they're really built well. Um, so there's, it's not just appearance. Right. Craft also, also is about function. Yeah. And, and it's, uh, the a visual confidence that you have in the, in the equipment also, uh, that mm -hmm. you get. Um, one of the things, uh, one of a, a good example of that is, um, the parrot cam. Uh, and you can go to, um, Instagram and look up Parrot Cam. Um, he, 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 I forget what his name is. Ah, uh, it's, it's skipping me right now, but I think there's also parrotcam.com. And since my internet right now is slowed to nothing, uh, I can't look it up, but I, I'll put it in the show notes. Um, uh, he, is selling these things for I think three and four hundred dollars for for the cheapest ones, and they may be even more expensive than that. And uh, you know, each batch is sold out. I think before he makes it, uh, 
And he's just an incredible craftsman. An incredible. So I think what you're talking about, Kurt Mottweiler. Yes, yes, absolutely. And they're they're very elegant, understated uh, blocks of wood with a bit of brass and a knob, and you know, just very, yeah, very nice cameras. And and that's a good example of kind of something that's that's there's there's a strong sense of craftsmanship, but it's also very simple. So it's not it's not showing off. It's just no corners are cut you know it's like doing something as well as it can be without necessarily putting unnecessary flourishes or decorations on it right uh but it, it his handling of the wood and just the basic shape and um uh and even the metal portion you know the metal parts of of that camera are um uh are elegantly designed and and immaculately executed and um uh you know i and he was showing some videos uh he shows some videos every once in a while uh and he was showing some videos i don't know four or five months ago of um treating i think pressure treating the wood that that is the knob you know it's uh that's incredible level of craftsmanship that he has going on with those um and there's there's something particularly attractive about that as a device and i and i think that that's one of the one of the ones that would really tell me pick it up and shoot it but don't do it on any day that there's a chance of rain <laughs> you know what i mean uh that type well of i don't know yeah i mean i think that depends on uh the finish but um, i mean i wouldn't worry too much about it just because it's looks really fancy doesn't mean it can't be can't let a little rain on it so we've got all of these different types of aesthetics now the question is how do you make them uh and 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 what can we do uh to to start you know um you know working in those veins um one of the first ones that i came up with the first idea that i came up with goes back to like that lt1 um the olympus uh that has uh you know it's Underneath it, it's all the same as uh, the Mu-1, um, but it's got a different outside. And um, and that's essentially the camouflage concept. where the right, un- or, right, or a container or something. Sure, like or, or a wrapper or skin. You know, those are all right, right, different right. concepts. So, you know, if you were to, you know, so you have an underlying camera that's standard and you could, you know, this is, I, I think SLRs are, are you know, cheap. Cheap SLRs, you know, um, another one. Yeah, they follow that principle, sure. Yeah, Konica Auto Reflex Ts are are cheap. Go look at those. Um, and for years, and for years, camera companies have been often buying their guts from maybe the same supplier and just you know changing the outward as, appearance when as, they sell. As have, it yet. as have car companies, you know. Um, mm-hmm, sure. You know, uh, a Lincoln is a Ford with 
better upholstery, right? Um, right. And, right. you know, and that goes, you know, uh, goes throughout that, in, you know, entire industry. Um, you know, it, it comes to the point where, you know, Volvo has one engine. They only, uh, all their cars use a single engine. Uh, I think it has some variations to it. Like um, there's some that are turbocharged and there's some that are supercharged and, and turbocharged, but it's all one engine. Um, so, you know, it's, it, it's, um, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. I just thought of something that I'm not going to say. Um, but, um, so it, with camouflage, you know, we talked about the idea of steampunk cam where you start gluing stuff on the outside. Um, and you could even have, you know, some functional clockwork, you know, uh, you know, that's all I was going to say. That's an immediate, that's my immediate reaction is that if you're going to really make something that looks like a steam locomotive, then it better have a place to build a fire and it better make steam. Right. Like that's kind of right. my feeling about it. And actually maybe that's not such a bad idea. I think a steam powered camera could be a lot of fun. I, um, a, a long time ago, uh, this would have been, uh, 2004, 2005. I, um, taught 3d, design, 3D um, modeling uh, for a graphic design in, in a graphic design kind of setting. And the, the um, 3D modeling, uh, one, of, one of the projects that, that they could do is a steampunk telephone, a uh, steampunk cell phone. And uh, one of the guys came up with, with one that, that had a little boiler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's see that's I think so uh, so I, basically I to me to my way of thinking I mean steampunk is basically one of the one of the family of kind of cosplay uh, sure um you know tribes and and that in that sense it's a lot of fun but it's it's play and right. I I personally I'm going to wait until I can actually fly before I put on the tights and wear my underwear on the outside like it's just <laughs> <laughs> it's just how I feel about it. It's like false advertising. You right. Know? <laughs> right. But but then will you fly? And can I video it? <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh so yeah, um no, I I, I follow you. Um it, it's it, camouflage flies in the face of form follows function. It's the antithesis of So it has its place and sort of the yeah. ideal version to me is sort of Sherlock Holmes's disguises, right? Like if uh -huh. you really have need of a disguise and if you really make that like an art or craft and it's in its own right then i'm all for it but if it's just kind of a feeble attempt to make a boring thing look exciting well, maybe it's worth doing or maybe it isn't but it it starts to fizzle off into some other kind of fantasy land that i personally am less interested in um so gluing right. decorations onto a camera it doesn't doesn't make get me very excited but it's fun i mean i love making collages and gluing things together just as a fun process but well one of the things eh. one of the things that we come across when we buy old cameras is um a poorly aged leatherette and poorly aged uh, you know every once in a while real leather or vulcanite you know that you get from uh on on leicas um Right, and there's a whole cottage industry of making, you know, fancy new skins for right. old cameras. Right. right. 
One of the, by the way, uh, just a little aside, you talked about the exotic, you know, lizard skin and, and stuff like that. Uh, one of the things that I remember reading a while back is uh, be really careful if you want to travel with a lizard skin camera, because that may violate um, uh, laws um, for countries that you travel to. And or they, it might enrage somebody like me who might just get mad. Right, right. <laughs> when, when, they see, when they see it. Exactly. <laughs> well, but, you know, and, but it's the whole idea of even, you don't even want cow skin um, to be fake. Or even, or even for that matter, vegan leather um, uh, to be fake um, lizard skin because... You know who's to who's to say it's not real, right? You know they got to take right. a, they got to do a DNA test, and sure. you know good luck doing the DNA test on and on, and you know who knows how many lizards were harmed in making the leatherette anyway. You know right, uh, right, exactly. It's all it's all bad or toxic in some way. Yeah. So I mean, one of the things that that I've done several times is you know reskin cameras. I uh, my M two. One of the reasons why I bought it, I bought it with the idea of um, of sprucing it up cosmetically and and selling it on as as a uh, um, as a money making venture. And then I just fell in love with the camera, <laughs> and I just kind of decided, ah, maybe I'll keep this. Um, well, I've got but, I've got a, a a solution to that, which is that there are all these old objects and cuddly toys and furniture and upholstery and things that you can skin and use that you know that recycle that skin right to, uh, right exactly cover. exactly i had uh i taught uh, a book making class um and book making as in making a book not as in taking bets i don't <laughs> i don't teach a class on on wagering um but uh on uh, and one of the materials, um, uh, you know, I uh, gave my students different options for materials for for the outside and leather um, and uh, vegan leather, which is essentially polyurethane printed material. Um, and uh, I, um, and I, I was talking about where to get the leather and and one of the places, you know, you can go to the uh, thrift stores and buy old jackets. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and if, uh, you know, that, that type of thing. Uh, and one of the things that's nice about that is it's very thin and it's very pliable and it's already been, you know, works, worked to a softness. Um, mm -hmm. so, so that was one of the sources. And, uh, I had two students who were driving somewhere in Jacksonville, uh, Florida and, they passed a um, a dumpster that where somebody had dumped a leather couch, and they went back to make sure that it was actually a leather couch, and um, and and sure enough, it was a leather couch. And it was out there at the dumpster, so they ripped all of the leather off. You know, which you know, think about that—a couch. Just think about how many books you can make with that. The problem, yeah. the problem was apparently the house it had been in uh, was uh, essentially used as a hot box. And are you are you familiar with the term hot boxing? Uh, no. That's that's when you 
go into an enclosed enclosed space. A car is uh, is good for a hot box, and you smoke as much weed as is possible with as many people <laughs> in it as possible to get as high as possible. <laughs> so that's hot boxing, and uh, a. a and apparently they could not get the smell out and they <laughs> they tried everything so so they had all of this hot boxed leather um and they eventually took it to the dumpster <laughs> oh man so anyway um but uh but that's one of the things that you can do um now one of the other things that you can do is you can use other materials um, I, I keep seeing on eBay like old feds and um, uh, and other Soviet cameras that have I, I assume it's vinyl I, I don't know but it's got like a wood grain and that mm-hmm. looks really good. Um, well, there's also people who u- who use actual wood so I think Dora Goodman's cameras are modified by using sure actual wood veneer that is applied instead of leather yeah um and and if you're good with it you know certainly you could do that um Mm -hmm. uh you know you would you would have to steam it to bend it around an edge of the camera or if it or if it's a flat panel that's even better you know like you could do the Mm -hmm. the back uh you know the the film door uh quite easily um but that's that's one of the things um and, you know, uh, my R3M that I talk about that came to me beat up because it had been a loner camera. Um, uh, the person who sold it had used it as a student loner camera. Well, the leatherette had come off. Well, it was actually a rubberette. It was a rubber surface that's on those cameras. Um, and that had come off and he had uh, black duct tape. Um, and, or actually it's not quite duct tape cause it's not, it doesn't have that really glossy surface and it's not, um, but it's a tape, you know, essentially a black tape and it works perfectly well, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for, for that type of thing. And, you know, duct tape comes in all of those different colors and patterns, uh, now, you know, for the duct tape, duct tape craftsman. And it's relatively easy to use. The problem is that it leaves that residue when it comes off. So, so that would be sure. Um, uh, that would be an idea. So, and then the the other approach to camouflage is what is commonly done with pinhole cameras, which is just, you just use something that wasn't intended to be a camera as the body of a camera, so that you know it, you right. have an oatmeal box or or whatever. a mint box. It looks like an oatmeal box, like but that. it's yeah. functioning. Is it? Yeah, right. So there's another approach. Yeah, like the La Sardina um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Lomography Society camera. Uh, you know, is made to look like a sardine can. Um, and uh, but I've also seen really nice uh, pinhole cameras made from a sardine can sure. as well. So sure, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, and that's, um, you know, uh, there's a certain amount of camouflage there um, uh, that is also structure uh, on that that's a little bit different. So, mm-hmm. so uh, the other, uh, you know, uh, it, and that actually kind of leads into our next section, which is new structures, um, where uh, the camera device is um, is designed... Um, you know, to look like something, um, uh, um, you know, to, to, for an aesthetic, you know, so the ham mm-hmm. camera company, new box that we've talked about, um, would be a good example. Um, 
Ethan's original camera dactyl would be a good example. Uh, there's a guy uh, out of the uh, out of the Soviet Union. Yes, and not only former Soviet Union. Yeah, right. not only is he out of the Soviet Union, he's out of the past. No, uh, out of Russia right now. Who is selling driftwood cameras and uh, and those things look really good. Uh, I, I think that they look great. Um, but then you know there are also uh, new camera materials, so we get you know all those three D materials, um, mm, the plastics, yeah, right, um, and um, like the plexiglass that Chroma makes, you know, that the Chroma Cam camera, the four by five, is made out of. You know, you can get it in all those different colors. Um, uh, you know, the materials themselves are, are colored. Uh, one of the things that I've done with the Franken cameras is, uh, then spray painted those, uh, metal, uh, lens cones that I've made. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, so, or, or I used also, um, some black anodized aluminum. Uh, sheet that I bought from Amazon and I still have quite a bit of and it was like 25 bucks to have it shipped to my house and I've made uh, I don't know four or five different projects out of that one sheet it's pretty good um so basically the, the talking about how the materials themselves uh are going to have a, 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 a strong impact on the appearance right right exactly so, I mean, one of the things that you see uh, with Dora Goodman's um, and a lot of the other, you know, one-off makers, and I'm not saying, I don't know how much of her stuff is one-off, um, but a lot of, you know, if you go to Google and search um, handmade camera or homemade camera, uh, you'll get a lot of them that are machined out of metal, but the metal mm-hmm. isn't then covered. Um, you know, uh, that the metal is part of the aesthetic, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and that machine metal, and that's something that's nice. And you can use, you know, different metals A brass is going to look different from an aluminum, uh, that's going to look different from an anodized aluminum. That's going to look different from a block machined aluminum. You You know, know? it's it's funny how these things go in cycles because the, the classic Leicas were machined out of brass and then painted. Right. (laughs) So, right, exactly. Right. Um, and, and I kind of sympathize with that yeah. because I don't really like to see a big lump of brass pressed against someone's face. Like, I think the painting was a very good idea. But, but you know, also, um, a lot of those cameras where there's wear and you get the brassing around the edge of a mm-hmm. black camera or around the edge of yeah. a chrome camera, God, that's good looking. You know, mm-hmm. so there's no reason why you can't do that you can't fake that, you know, I mean, and that's one of the things that if you look at the ham camera, I have internet again. So let me bring up ham camera. Um, um, they had different surfaces, um, that they could get. And some of them were distressed, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, that distressed look, uh, I, I found, to be very interesting. Um, and, uh, okay. Where, where are they? Um, I'm looking at pin box. Where is it? 
Okay. Anyway, um, it's loading slow. So, uh, you know, that's, that's another way of working. And then, you know, just simply paint, you know, um, you can paint wood, uh, you can paint metal, you can paint plastic, uh, you can paint all those things and get and change the surface. So, yeah. And, and I, I, that also is, I find very appealing for many reasons. Uh, you can unify things right that might clash otherwise you can you know and color is wonderful in itself and uh, your point that it wears in interesting ways is also i think uh, really worthwhile and then then and then there's also newer versions of painting that are worth looking at such as powder coating right right and um you know and you can powder you you can powder coat at home am i right i mean you don't because you're, you're um, well, I suppose you could technically. Yeah. Uh, the key thing is you need to. There's two parts to it. You apply it with a, a device that use that puts an electrical charge on the uh, thing you're painting, um, so the powder will be stick to the. When you spray the powder on, it sticks due to an electrostatic charge, and so you have very little overspray and very little waste, um, and you don't need any volatile um, uh, solvents. And then once this stuff is sort of, you know, statically stuck on, you put it in an oven and bake it, in, and that gives it a really, really strong, smooth coating that's uh, that's stuck on really well because it kind of soaks into the warm, expanding metal. So it's a it's a environmentally more friendly and more effective method and more efficient and less expensive. So, I mean, it's right. one of those new advances in technology that's really a good thing and uh i've been coating steel with powder coat for quite a while and putting it through pretty severe testing and it holds up very well so yeah if you wanted to make metal parts and have them uh painted that that's a good place to start although making small parts i mean doing it yourself would be would make a lot of sense for small parts so that's something to look into because it would be you know, any company that does it would have some minimum charge that would be too expensive to do little bits and pieces. And you know, right, right, exactly. I uh, I know some people who have um, had a, have had little uh, home industry um, uh, companies uh, or whatever. Uh, I'm I'm searching for the right word, and not finding it, but. Um, who, who powder coat um, like uh, um, the Yeti cups. So I think it can be done. What I is mean, a Yeti cup? A Yeti cup. You know, they're those um, uh, stainless steel uh, tumblers that you see people walking around with all the time. At my day, it was the Sierra Cup, and how, how did we? How did us environmentalists turn into a, a Bigfoot? I have no idea because <laughs> the company what has Yeti, happened. Because the company that popularized them is Yeti. So I see. yeah, um, but anyway, um, one of the things uh, you know, I, I uh, talked about. Uh, I think the last episode, or maybe the one before, um, somebody on Instagram, and I lost who it is. And please tell me if you're the person. Somebody on Instagram was wrapping a, um, you know, a cardboard pinhole camera with fabric uh, to, to change the texture. And I thought that was really good. And one of the things that I have been thinking about looking into is um, uh, wallpaper. 
you know, uh, gluing wallpaper to, uh, to cameras. I just have to, to figure out what kind of glue and all that type of stuff, uh, would work. So, uh, you Probably know, contacts, contact cements, usually a really good choice if you're yeah. trying to stick, stick something to metal and want to be able to get it back off. Yeah. Later. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, and then the faux finishes, you can, you know, make fake wood, fake marble, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, after having said all that about powder coating, there's something really enjoyable about direct application of traditional solvent-based paint. I mean, brushing sure. it on is re- really uh, a, a good way to do it. So all of this reminds me of uh, that there's a book I'm reading right now. I'm going to jump put this in out of place in the podcast. Um, I'm reading a book called the, I think it's, let's see, what is the, let me get the full title. It's called the evolution of beauty, how Darwin's forgotten theory of mate choice shapes the animal world and us. Uh, so I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but my actual, my actual education is in history of ideas and history of science. Uh, and I concentrated in biology and, and evolution and Darwin has always been at the center of uh, my fascination with that t- with that subject, and when you look at human, you know, culture, things like cameras, uh, boats, anything that people make, um, th- there's a way you can think of it as an evolutionary process, with the sort of survival of the fittest being one of the factors that drives the evolution of, you know, an animal or a plant or a thing that people make to take on the form that it it has, and so to some extent, there's utilitarian forces at work, and for the last hundred and some years, everyone has focused on that in terms of biological evolution. But Darwin had a parallel theory that uh, biological evolution was also shaped directly by mate choice, so that sexual selection was an entirely separate mechanism. And that's been poo-pooed for years. But of course, if you really look at it, it's a huge, uh, it's a huge force in, in evolution, essentially that, you know, that very often the female of the species getting, if, if that, if that creature gets to choose, will have a, essentially shape the next generation by the choice of mate. And this is really what we're talking about here in a lot of ways. We're talking about the appearance or beauty or lack of beauty of a camera and how that affects its function and its survival and its, you know, its popularity in, in the world. Uh, it's the same idea. And you mentioned social plumage earlier, and that's really what we're talking about. Right. Absolutely. With a lot of this stuff. And, yeah. uh, if for, you know, uh, and just as a, uh, if you think of a product evolution, uh, you know, if you think of products, um, you know, the products that stay around are the ones that sell, right? Yes. You know, so. Yes. And, and, and it may have nothing whatsoever to do with functionality in the end. Right. It's, it's how, how much pull does it have is what really counts. Right. Right. Absolutely. You know, I mean, it, there's the, you know, the it, Betamax, right? Um, uh, and for, for people who are too young, um, Sony came out with Betamax and then, uh, JVC and, uh, Panasonic, I think it was, uh, came out with, um, VHS and, um, uh, the, the Betamax was a far superior system, but more people bought VHS. So, um, you know, and so, you know, Betamax was gone, you know, and, uh, uh, and, uh, 
there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, but it, it's, it's not necessarily survival of the fittest. It's survival of the prettiest, right? Um, and, and the, right. And there's a sense that like, so a new mutation that potentially is an improvement might not survive because it goes against, uh, some, you know, tradition of attractiveness. So for instance, if, if you could picture, um, a new camera coming out from a, from a camera company that is just the most marvelous, marvelous piece of gear. But if the, if the shutter sound was really terrible, <laughs> right? Absolutely. Right. Uh, Nobody would want to use it in public. <laughs> it, 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 um, the GW 690, uh, right there. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So, uh, you know, I, I, I fully agree. I think that that, um, if, if they had taken care of that, uh, first of all, I would not have sold mine. Um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, if, so, I mean, there, there, there's definitely something, something to that. It is experience as much as it is, um, you know, quality of, of outcome. You know, uh, once again, w- w- I hear film photographers talk about it all the time, you know, that, that it's the process. It is not the outcome. It is the process. Um, and, you know, and the outcome is, I think, I think if you really think about it, the whole concept of sexual selection uh, follows that principle. It's, it's, it's the, the process, process that gets you involved. That's right. <laughs> it's not the outcome. That's, that's right. That's right. Um, I'm just teasing. Yeah, no. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. Well, I've managed to make it into my fifties without any children. So, so yeah. I've enjoyed the process, but not the outcome. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, uh, yeah, absolutely. So, okay. Let's leave it at that. Right. I guess, I guess what I'm getting at is like, how important, like, so for instance, in theory, if you could have five identical cameras, each one with a completely different appearance. Now that, that would be an interesting experiment. Like, let's say take two, let's say, try an experiment where you, you basically have something that functions exactly the same, but has a completely different appearance and take it out and use it and see, and see if you can, you know, feel a real difference in terms of results right so so in other words you could have yeah so that that would be an experiment to try at some point uh, uh maybe with a hand camera so something where it's not already a big cumbersome you know the the, the trouble with view cameras is that they they all are odd looking to people now so no matter whether you make a conservative one right. or a crazy, crazy right. camera dactyl one, they're all going to be um, something out of the ordinary. So, so it would be best to try this experiment with sort of a small hand camera, and then and see if if the pink one performed differently than the black one. You know, right? Yeah. Or um, or uh, the other, and and judge it from just the outcome. Um, yeah, I think, because, I think so. I mean, well, you could also describe the experience. Right? Yeah. I mean, well, but, but what I'm trying to say is that, is that the, uh, process will determine the outcome. 
Um, right. So, and so how does the how does the color affect the process? Uh, you're right. Therefore, the um, right. So yeah, I mean, the way to do that really is with um, yeah. I mean, you could I suppose you could do it with uh, a DSLR or, or a mirrorless. Um, for digital, just, sure. Just simply with uh, well, because that's what people are used to, right? Mm-hmm. So, or you could do it. Uh, well, well it's just I a regular thirty five millimeter film camera yeah. too. I mean just something that something that's standard enough that that's not right. the the real issue. The issue is is it is it a steampunk camera or is it a plain Jane vanilla camera or is it a I was just thinking with, with color. I mean color would be the first one to do. Because color is mm-hmm. get, relatively get easy rid of all the other considerations. Yeah. yeah. Right. So the the form is the same and the, Right. Yeah. That's a that's a good point. I mean, and this is something that exists. There is there's some really some really horrifying examples. Like, have you seen the pink BB guns? Yeah, uh, or I've seen yeah. I've seen the pink shotguns. So okay, I mean, you've got to go. know where I live. Exactly. You know? um, right. So right. or or the the or the pink handguns. You know, those are mm-hmm. those are right. all over the place. Um, yeah. The feminization of mayhem. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, and, and part of the deal, part of the deal, you know. Uh, um, Specifically with color, and this is something that really fits in this conversation, um, is that really um, other than cameras like the LT1 and um, if you listen to the latest, the FPP that came out on the 15th of uh, January, um, they, they uh, Leslie talks about... Uh, a camera that's, you know, comes with a compact and, uh, you know, is really geared for, geared for women. Um, oh, so you can like do your makeup. Right. Well, but it's, but it's, it, you know, if you think that kind of compact, if you think yeah. back to a lot of those things, it's really pandering. Um, and, and this, this has to do with the color pink. Um, uh, one of the, one of my assignments, um, that I give my students um, is that they have to design for the op- opposite gender. Um, and, um, and the idea is um, that men um, who are first, you know, saying, okay, so I have to design a package that's going to attract women. The first thing they do is make it pink. And, um, and one of the one of my rules is that you cannot use pink or any of its shades. So you can't use essentially any red in any of the designs. And when the women are designing for men, they can't use blue. Um, and uh, it, and it really for a lot of beginning designers that just that um, limitation uh, handcuffs them. And it really, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it removes from them the, their shorthand, their, and, and it's pandering, right? Um, so, right, at, right. so that to me is a lot of, you know, with the, the pink shotgun and the pink handgun, you know, that's pandering. That really is pandering. But on the other hand, if you really designed it for women, you would design it in, uh, you know, you would design it to fit a different size and shape hand. Um, you know, I'm thinking of a handgun at this point, but um, but it goes to cameras. 
um, you would uh, design it with different functionality. Um, well, so for instance, it might emit vitamins instead of bullets. <laughs> well, there is that. There is. I mean, uh, okay. Let's go back to camera. So we will we'll take the the the, uh, the gun debate, which I, I have a feeling we are on the same side of uh, out of it. But um, it, you know, uh, it, so let's talk about cameras. In that, really, cameras are. Uh, I see them as very masculine designs. Uh, I see them as really designed for gadget-loving men. And that is not to say that there aren't gadget-loving women. Um, I understand what you're saying. We're talking about traditional tradi- roles here, yeah. Traditional, right, exactly. Um, uh, and I just, and when thing when cameras are designed for women, um, just like when cars are designed for women, the first thing that they do is put a put a different color paint out there um and uh and that and that's good and that's good that does break the black and silver um uh hegemony <laughs> uh right anyway. but but i think your your point that the color is a big distraction is a, is a, is a really important point because in the end, that's inconsequential. Like right. if you're going to design something to to play a different role in social interactions, and especially with something as murky and confusing as gender, then you've got you've got to get away from that surface stuff and look at the actual function or you know how it's used and what it's for and right how people are going to react to it. And right. All that. Yeah. And um, you know, uh, one of the things. Uh, you know, um, I'm, I'm going to get come back to paint for for one moment. You know, if if pink was uh, if pink universally sells for women, everything would be pink. That are that are you know that's aimed. Well, for what women. you're saying is it doesn't universally right. sell, and that's exactly right. what I'm saying. It doesn't universally sell. It doesn't. Um, you know. Uh, and, you know, but but we don't, I really don't think that, that cameras are generally marketed to women. Um, and uh, even though they're... Well, as a thing, but there is certainly a whole sub, you know, subculture of of feminized cameras. And I think you'll see right. a lot of it, of that, more of that out of Japan, for instance, where there's... But that is a... There's much more of a dependence uh, or is a tendency to design cameras that are only different aesthetically so so we mentioned this a little the before Instax but there line are is perfect example exactly of that. exactly um yeah and where it's an identical camera but they've they've created a different look in order to capture a different market right exactly um and you know that certainly comes under the camouflage uh end of it but i mm-hmm. part of the deal is that i don't really uh, it, I think the main, it, you know, it, it comes back to uh, how we tested car safety for for years or designed cars for years. You know, you would design it for the average man and uh, just hope that women liked it. Um, you know, yeah, I used I used to ride a school bus, w- w- which was driven by a very short woman, and she had to to wire a, a stack of two by fours onto the gas pedal just to drive right it, you know it, it was 
you know, <laughs> and and I think that the I think car companies are are doing a lot better to make their cars much more, um, much more uni- much more adjustable, much more adjustable. Mm-hmm. Here was here's a little bit of um, of design history, and I can't tell you where I got it, so um, I uh, I can't verify its veracity, but this is a story that I know. Um, and that was in the 1930s, um, the Navy or not the, yeah, the Navy air, um, core, um, came up with a specification for, um, a plane. And what they, what they did was they made all of the controls perfect for the average male. So they, the the design was uh was based on the average male um and you know who yeah okay so uh in the united states that's what 5 foot 11 5 foot 10 something like that um you know maybe 160 pounds um maybe not not today um let's go back to 1930 um and then you know with a certain arm reach and a certain you know, and a certain leg length. And what they found was it was really hard to find those pilots. <laughs> um, and, and they revised it. You know, they eventually went back in and revised the design to be completely adjustable. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, even though they designed for the average, um, that meant it was wrong for most people. Right, absolutely. Because it's not really the average, it's the median it's, is right, what it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Well, I mean, and it could even be the mode. You know, it could even be that person that they see most often. You know, that the army sees most often. Um, uh, because they're not going to see very, very short people and very, very tall people generally in that force. Uh, oh, yeah, here's... Um, uh, and, and I think this came from the first season of Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History. That's what I remember it um, from, because I also remember the statistic that if you are in your 20s and eight feet tall and male and live in the United States, there is a 40 percent chance you are an NBA player. Forty <laughs> percent. Wow. Right. Right. Just think about that. You know, I mean, yeah. it's an extreme of the human form, but right. still, you know. Right. So that, so that's this. Did this I say over eight feet? Maybe I result. over seven feet, over seven feet. Right. I think it right. is not over eight. Feet. Yeah. If it's over eight feet, it's probably a 99% probability. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> uh, or zero. Um, I don't know. I, I, I really don't know. But it, I, I think it's over seven feet tall. So um, that is, you know, that comes down to, you know, you can design for the mode as opposed to for the average, you know, um, the most people that you're, you're going to get. Um, so, uh, but I, uh, you know, once again, if, if you look at camera design today, generally, uh, I find it to be much more um male oriented and um 
And, you know, we can certainly do something about that as homemade camera makers. You know, we make cameras for ourselves, right? That's one of the things that, you know, that's the hallmark of the homemade camera. We make it for ourselves. And, um, you know, even, you know, if I look at Dora Goodman's cameras, I see a lot of woodwork and a lot of metalwork. And that is almost... um, uh, I, I, I find her designs maybe a little bit more male oriented, but that, I mean, that doesn't, you know, if she designs them for herself, she can design them however she wants. I'm not, but they are also, I think, coming from a sensibility that has a lot to do with fashion and jewelry and, and, and craft. And, and so there's also that, um, it's a, when, you know, when you talk about gender, there's a lot of different kinds of versions of that it's a spectrum it's definitely not the it's not the camo version it's it's more the um you know fine cabinet work version or whatever so right there there's all these other levels beyond gender that we're we're also we have to mix into all of this um but i what you're basically talking about is interesting because it's not just about you know this market idea that we're selling this technological gadget to to people and usually men value that kind of useless right uh technological quality of things more highly than women do um it's and i think it's and i think it's a flaw to to feel that way and one of the ways it bothers me is that a lot of uh devices of this type have really terrible user interfaces and and i i think in some ways that's not a coincidence i think that making uh, something into a kind of Rubik's cube that needs solving instead of a really easy to figure out device is part of the the appeal. It's like I am in this exclusive club that it takes uh, you know two years to learn how to operate this device. Right. In the way that, for instance, that you know the clergy used to speak a language that nobody else understood. You know, right. or scientists for that matter often speak a language that nobody else understands. Yeah. And there's some value in having specialized terminology. There's some value in having complicated menu in a camera, but there's a very big part of that is more the secret society kind of idea. Absolutely. If this is, if this is this real obscure thing that you have to spend time to learn, then, you know, then it makes it exclusive. One of the things that I do as a design educator is I indoctrinate my students in the nomenclature of graphic design. Um, you know, uh, a perfect example of that, one of the best examples that you, uh, that I have of that is uh, the difference between a font and a typeface. And, um, you know, a, a font is a digital file, very much like an MP3 that contains mm-hmm. a typeface and the typeface is the design of the letters. And, uh, you know, which literally once was the shape of a hunk of lid, rich, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, um, the font, which means fountain is, uh, the pool of letters from which you pulled, um, uh, when you were, hmm. when you're compositing a, a page, but, um, it's, I, you know, I, I, you know, I, I can be real pedantic and, um, and say, well, actually, you know, even though it says it's the font menu, what you are choosing is a different font file, the digital file. But what you really, the reason why you're choosing it is because of the typeface. And, you you know, you can get real pedantic. But when those students go out into the 
business world, out into the job world, um, they need to uh, have the air of expertise. And mm-hmm. part of that is knowing the nomenclature. So, sure. so that certainly, that is certainly something of it. You know, we talk about F-stop and, uh, and aperture and, um, uh, you know, the, all those, all those things that are, you know, have. have so, real... so lang- language as plumage. Basically. Right. Language is plumage. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, right. You know. And plumage is also language. It's, it's just both, goes both ways. Right. It, right. Absolutely. Um and, um, you know, so, so there's, there's something to be said for that. And, and part of that, you know, does come back in with the design. Now I want, I, I want to say a couple of things about, you know, talking about gender and, and camera design. Um, and one of them is that I'm a white male living in the United States. I have a perspective that is, that is, um, uh, skewed. skewed by that, you know, uh, right. I have a master's degree in design skewed by that. I don't have a master's degree in science, so it is not skewed by that. Right. I don't, you know, uh, so, uh, you know, no, I think it's skewed by the lack of degree in science. Yeah. <laughs> it's all skewed. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, so part of the deal is if I have, if I am off base, um, you know, I'm off base and I, you know, uh, and, uh, and maybe a lot of women see those cameras as designed for them just as much as anybody else. One of the, um, one of the things that I was just thinking of. No, I don't actually don't think that's true. I think that, I think that a lot of things carry so much baggage in our culture that, you know, what we have is we have an evolving society, but we've still got all the baggage, right? So, so. There are plenty of things out there. Um, you know, I, w- I might often really want to wear a skirt, but if I do, then I'm going to be carrying all this baggage and, you know, dealing with every other people's reaction right. to it, for instance. Right. Right. And so there's nothing, it's nothing to do with function that has to do with a bunch of social uh, reactions. Right. You're right. Exactly. And, you know, and, and what camera you carry also triggers those. And, mm-hmm. um, and what you, you know, and who you point at, uh, point your mm-hmm. camera at, uh, triggers those, those types of things as well. So, um, so anyway, uh, one of the, uh, one last also note on camera design and camera design for the genders. Um, there are a lot of people who talk about, um, the Olympus camera, the Olympus SLRs of, um, of the, the nineties, you know, the, the OM series, you know, they're considerably mm-hmm. smaller than eighties yeah, and nineties. Yeah. Eighties and nineties, really right. Late seventies actually. Yeah. Um, well they're considerably smaller and they're, I've heard a lot of people say, you know, my hands are too big for those. Um, and you know, um, so maybe Olympus really was doing a design for smaller hands um, and less weight and less to carry and easier to so tip into a, a bag and all that type of stuff yeah. versus say Nikon. Well, we've Ooh. talked about this before yeah. and I think the small hands thing is very often it's just, it's just what you're accustomed to. Sure. So, so I've used cameras that seem tiny at first and then eventually my hands figured out, mm-hmm. you know, how to fit them properly. And there's a lot that has to do with habit. 
once I got adjusted to small cameras, then I could, I can't go back, mm -hmm. you know, because once your hand's used to the small one, and then when you pick the big one up, you think, well, what's this extra two pounds for? Right. Forget about it. Right. You know, right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I have a hammer. I don't need that. I don't need that camera. Exactly. Um, you know, uh, and, and really a lot when I, um, uh, when I started shooting the Leica CL, um, that is a, that's a tiny little camera. And I really think all of those controls are too close for me. I, I find it, um, I find it a bit unwieldy. So, but changing just those controls with on the same body might work fine. Right, right, exactly. Um, so, uh, but I do also like the fact that it fits in my pocket. I've already mentioned the, the book on evolution, uh, the, the relationship between beauty and sexual selection and evolution, which is a really interesting book, and it's directly relevant to this, in my opinion. Um, also to much of what we photograph. So it's a fascinating, fascinating topic. I did have also a, a photography-oriented book pulled out, um, and it's just something from a used bookstore, Color Photography, a Working Manual by Henry Horenstein, or Stein, and... It's a a really good overall uh, description of traditional film-based color photography, and I find it it's got it sort of explains it all in a way that some some of the other books don't. So I, I like it. I think it was published by Little Brown, and when did it come out? Oh. This book was originally copyright 1995, so just the end of the film era. All right. Uh, I have a couple of shout-outs. Um, my first one is to P.H. Dom. Uh, you can find P.H. Dom's work on our Flickr group, uh, Homemade Camera uh, Podcast Flickr group. And um, he does some amazing work, and... I made uh, I made a comment um, after he posted a, uh, another beautiful design. You know, when can I buy one? Um, apparently, he has moved from the UK to Japan, and he has been setting up his you know built. I think he's building a house or something like that, um, and he's setting himself up to do some uh, you know woodworking and cabinetry uh, stuff. But he. Uh, said to me that he will be um, having some cameras coming up in the future. And I told him that um, when those uh, cameras are available for sale, um, you know, he certainly has our platform to announce that from if he, um, if he would like to. So um, his work is absolutely beautiful. And, uh, you know, uh, just go back and take a look, you know. Uh, the quality makes me, makes me want to cry because I don't have those skills and, um, and I'm not currently doing anything to help develop those skills. So, you know, that's that, a lot of that's my fault. Uh, and a lot of it is his I, talent. I think, um, I don't know. I think, I think you just need to get some sandpaper and use there it. There we go. There we go. 
<laughs> hey, this thing's all kind of oblong and round. Why is that? Mm -hmm. Sandpaper. Um, I have a, I have I have a shout out. Oh yeah, um, I okay. Throw in. Um, uh, so from from the lensless lensless podcast Flickr group, uh, there were some cameras posted in the in a in a particular discussion on building your own camera in that uh, Flickr group. A guy named Johan or Rubber and Glue on Flickr um, posted some homemade cameras. Uh, and the discussion on, under the Lensless Podcast Flickr group is share your camera builds. And down at the bottom, there's three examples by this rubber and glue character that are a, a nice range of very straightforward adaptations. One of them, he just sticks a milk carton onto a roll film back. Another one is just a pinhole on a view camera. And then there's a very nice tin can uh Camera. Okay. They're very, they're simple, but inspiring. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, uh, it, I, I'm, I, I'm slowly getting there. Um, getting to that, uh, to that page, uh, on Flickr to, to take a look. Um, but, uh, one of the things that, the other thing that I wanted to talk about were, were I wanted to talk about a couple of podcasts, um, I talked about Matt Loves Cameras. That's um, something that's uh, relatively new. Um, and um, there's also a couple of new podcasts, Uncle Jonesy's Cameras. And uh, it's two brothers, the Lane brothers, Kevin and... Oh, mm, I forget what the others named. Um, then... Uh, one uh, from A1 Rediscovering Film posted a new episode. I listened to it this morning when I was eating breakfast. Um, he's been away. He had to, to, to leave his podcast behind. Um, and uh, he has um, posted something new. So, um, you know, certainly look for that. Um, I'm trying to think of uh, whether there are any other new podcasts, um, that I've listed, certainly go to, um, uh, filmpodcastnetwork.com, uh, and, um, you know, take a look at the listing of podcasts there. Uh, there, uh, there's a whole bunch of good stuff, a lot of podcasts to listen to. I was just on, uh, an episode of Lensless, not this last one, but the one that would have been, yeah, okay, well, now that I think about when this one's going to come out, uh, one back in January. Um, so, uh, the, you know, there, there's some good, good stuff going on out there. Um, uh, take a listen. Um, so, uh, if you would like to get a hold of us, uh, you can get a hold of me, uh, Graham at homemadecamera.com. That's my email address. You can also get a hold of me on, Flickr, I am Freezer of Photons. On Instagram, I am Graham Homemade Camera, all one word. And um, yeah, and how do they get a hold of you, Nick? Uh, well, I have some occasionally post on Instagram under A V Y N I C K, Avi Nick. Um, Nick Lyle on Flickr is where the bulk of my images are and camera designs are available. And then uh, you can also reach me directly by email at nick at homemadecamera.com. 
All right. And we want to thank uh, Robbie for, um, you know, for giving us the the option of playing the music. Yeah, Robbie Cribs of Soundtrap Studios um, created the music that we're using in the podcast. Thanks again. 